morning. I would invite you to please open your copy of God's Word to the prophet Joel, chapter 2. Joel, chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'll uh, say once again, as I said in the Sunday school hour, what a joy and an honor it is to be with you, dear saints, this morning. Uh, I have found that, of course, the greatest joy of being a Christian is that the Lord has called us out of darkness into light. He has called us to himself. But near unto that is that not only has he called us to himself, but he has called us to one another. He's called us to be part of his body, the church. And so I say of truth that when I visit other churches such as your own, it's a great joy to be with brothers and sisters in the Lord, for we share a deeper bond than those who do not know him. It's a great joy to be with you all this morning. I would invite you to now give ear to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea, and the stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people will never again be put to shame. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, we give thanks to you for the privilege that is ours in the hearing of your word. And I pray that these, your dear people, would always count it a privilege to hear your word read and preached that we would know the love that you have for us. And I ask this morning as we consider the truths of your word, that we would all reckon ourselves as those who are your adopted children, those who are pitied, protected, and provided for. I ask this in the name of our Savior, Redeemer, and friend, the Lord Jesus. Amen. One of the great phenomenon in popular entertainment is that of the courtroom drama. Whether it's television shows such as Judge Judy or The People's Court, 
or following major cases in the headlines, such as the O.J. Simpson case from the 90s, or even more recently with Alex Murdoch. Our culture cannot seem to get enough of this stuff. And every case, like any good story, it, it builds to a crescendo, it builds to the climax. And it's not the interesting eyewitness testimony that brings us back again and again, nor is it the fascinating legal arguments that may be made, no matter how engaging those are. The crescendo, the point that we follow this to, is what will the verdict be? How will the jury rule? What will the judge say? And if you have ever had the unfortunate experience of being in court, even for something as menial as a traffic ticket, you know good and well, no one is awaiting that verdict on more pins and needles than the defendant. What is the judge going to say? This is the situation that the people of Judah find themselves in as we approach the text this morning. Joel's prophecy was written in the aftermath of a horrific locust plague. And to summarize where Joel has been taking the people so far, he has shown them that this plague, not, the, not just the locusts, but also the fire and the drought that followed them, they are the plain result of God's judgment on the people of Judah for having broken covenant with him. These are the very things that Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 would come upon those who break covenant with the living God. And again, these very same things are prayed about by Solomon in his great prayer at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And so in a sense, the trial of the nation of Judah has already happened. They have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Joel's primary concern for them, up to this point, is that there is yet a greater day of judgment to come. We spoke of it this morning as we confessed together the Nicene Creed. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And Joel's concern for the people of Judah is that they are not ready for this day of judgment. They are not ready for the coming day of the Lord. The, the, the locust plague and, and the drought and the fire, all those were just pictures, foretastes of the day of the Lord, which, which is great and very awesome, and none can endure. And therefore, Joel's plea throughout the first half of this book has been that the people of God would lay themselves upon his mercy. I think of David when it's brought out that he has sinned in requiring the census and the prophet gives him three options and he says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. That is Joel's desperate plea that the people would enter. And that's their only option. Because at the day of the Lord, it is God himself who is the judge. It is God himself who is the jury. It is God himself who is the prosecuting attorney. And these people are as guilty as the day is long. And my friends, I tell you this morning, that is not a good situation to be in. And the Lord, in the previous passage, summoned the people to himself. He says in verse 12, Yet even now, return to me. And the priests on behalf of the people in verse 17 have entered the plea, spare your people, O Lord. 
And I hope you realize that we, today, in the setting of the table for this sermon, are in that very same situation. The day of the Lord is nearer now to us than it was to them. And apart from God's mercy, we are not ready. We will all stand before a judge whom we have offended, and his mercy is our only hope. And so now, having entered that plea, the, the, the Jewish people await the verdict of the Lord. What is the judge going to say? Now, you have heard in the reading of our passage for consideration this morning that the verdict is incredibly gracious. It's incredibly merciful. And so as we consider this verdict, we'll do so under three headings, borrowing language from uh, the 12th chapter of our Confession of Faith. And in, in these headings, we're going to see uh, the Lord's pity on his people in verses 18 and 19. The Lord's protection of his people in verses 20 to 23. And finally, the Lord's provision for his people in verses 24 to 27. The Lord's pity, his protection, and his provision. Now, it's important to note at the outset, and I promise to not dive too deeply into the weeds on this, but it's important to note the tense of the verbs that are in this passage. In the Hebrew, they're what grammarians call a prophetic perfect. Now, that's technical language, but all it means is that the, the, these are future events that are not contingent on anything else. One scholar explains that it's as though the prophet Joel looked into the future and is reporting back what will surely come to pass. He is telling us what he has seen. A and this makes good sense, because so far, Joel has been telling the people of God what awaits those at the day of the Lord who have not turned back, who have not repented, who have not pled for mercy. And now that the people have shifted, he's going to tell them the other side of the coin at the day of the Lord. And many of these promises that we are going to discuss this morning will await the day of the Lord for their ultimate fulfillment, but we'll see glimmers of them, aspects of them, deposits of them, if you will, even today. And with all of that said, let us then examine verse 18. Verse 18 is, in many ways, the turning point of the book. It is the thesis statement on which the last half of the book hinges. Look at it again with me. The Lord became jealous for his land. He had pity on his people. And this verse is so important for our understanding of the rest of the passage, and it's really important for our understanding of the grace of God as a whole. The grace of God is, is built on these two pillars, his jealousy and his pity. And that first word, jealousy, uh, it may cause some question marks in your mind. Because we tend to have a very negative connotation of that word. It may even sound to some of your ears as, as one that is beneath a description of God. Because we tend to think of jealousy as somebody desiring control or benefit over something of which they have no right. right? And so maybe you're thinking of a, of a young child that is jealous of the attention their parents are, are giving to another sibling. And, and so they whine. They, they are jealous for what they don't actually have a rightful claim on. It's appropriate for parents to show love and affection to all of their children. Or perhaps you think of a co-worker. And, and you, were, you were both up for the same raise or for the same promotion, and, and you got it, and they didn't, and so they are jealous over something that they don't actually have a right to. 
And if that is our only concept of the word jealousy, then it does not fit God. For as we confessed again this morning in the Nicene Creed, he is the maker of heaven and earth. And just to be very clear, and then we said, of all things visible and invisible. And if it doesn't fall into one of those two categories, visible or invisible, it does not exist. By virtue of the fact that he made all things, he cannot be jealous for that which does not belong to him. As the psalmist says, the heavens are yours, the earth is yours also, the world and all that is in it. Why? For you have founded them. Therefore, God cannot be jealous in that sense. But there is another sense in which it's a very appropriate term. It's a very fitting term. Look again at verse 18, and he's he's specific. He says, he was jealous for his land. Of course, the Lord owns all lands. He owns all of the earth, but he has a particular land. He has a, a land and a people with whom he has made covenant. This is a covenant jealousy. This is jealousy of God in the same sense that he said to his people, you shall have no other gods before me. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. He is jealous to protect his position in our lives. And he will not give us over to those things which would lead us away from him and lead us into utter destruction. His jealousy for the good and well-being of his people is similar to that of a father and a husband who is jealous to protect his wife and children from that which would lead them into harm and danger. A loving husband out of jealousy and zeal for those entrusted to his care, will rise to protect them. And this is a most fitting example. Because after all, is this not how God styles himself so regularly in the scriptures? He is the husband of his people corporately. And he is the father of his adopted children individually. This is a covenant jealousy. And you see, his grace is shown towards his children, not according to what they have done, Not according to any merit that they have. Not according to anything that they own. He does not pull out a spreadsheet at the end of the quarter and evaluate how you've behaved and then decide based on that, how am I going to bestow grace, if at all? No. He shows grace because he's jealous for his people. To put it another way, the reliability of the promise that he makes to his people does not depend on those to whom the promise was made. The reliability of the promise depends on the God who made it. The Lord says through the Apostle Paul, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. Similarly, the author of Hebrews would say, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He has bound himself by covenant to this land, to this people, to his elect. And he is jealous for them because he is zealous for his own glory. And secondly, in this verse, we see that he has pity on his people. Elsewhere, the Lord, before handing down judgment on them, says, How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. Hosea 11.8 This is what Joel means when he says the Lord has pity on his people. He should punish us, 
We do not deserve his kindness. And yet, as a parent with a child, he looks on them with a pitying disposition. Dear child of God, it is my duty and my privilege to say to you this morning, he looks on you with pity. He longs for you as the prodigal son to come home and he will be like the father in that parable that runs out to greet you with a warm embrace. You do have to turn. You do have to come. That is true. But when you come, you come to one who has pity for you. You come to one who has abundant mercy. And I know we know this, but we need to be reminded often because it's so contrary to our natural way of thinking. I have the privilege of raising young children at this stage in my life. I mentioned them earlier in the Sunday school hour because, as I said there, they're not here. So they're fair game for this. And I was speaking with my six-year-old daughter recently. And I was speaking to her about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of the church. And I asked her, I said, do you believe these things? Do you believe in Jesus? And she said to me, Sometimes. So I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, Dad, sometimes I believe in Jesus, and other times I get sent to my room. (laughs) Now, we chuckle at the misunderstandings of a child. But is that not the same way we tend to default and think about God? He loves me when I'm good. He loves me when I obey. And again, yes and amen, we must be good. We must obey. But his love is not contingent on that. His love is because of himself. How freeing is the gospel of Jesus Christ that he loves you not because of you, but because of him. The zeal that he has to keep his own promises and his pity for you as his adopted child. What would it change about your own outlook on life this morning? If you knew these two things, one, that God is not able to break a single promise that he has made to his people. Now it's true that the realization of those promises is very likely to take a different form than you and I imagine. Nonetheless, they will all come to pass. But further, even if he could break a promise that he has made to you, he wouldn't because he does not want to because of his great love, his great pity for his children. And and, and this pity, it, it manifests itself in verse 19 in ways that might not be readily obvious to us. But in verse 19, he says, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Earlier in the book, in chapter 1 and verse 10, he has removed these very elements from them, the grain, the wine, and the oil. And if you're a careful student of your Old Testament, you know that these means, the grain, the wine, and the oil, were the provisions for the offerings by which the people of God could enter into his presence in worship. Um, The the book of Exodus ends on this, this great cliffhanger where the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and even Moses, who is the most holy, the most, uh, the, the most special of all people, is not able to enter in. And then we have the, the, the beginning of the book of Leviticus and, and the first nine chapters of the institution of all these grain, oil, oil, and wine offerings. And after those are instituted, 
then the people are able to go in. And so when he said in chapter 1 and verse 10, I'm taking these away, it was as though the covenant had been annulled. It was as though the created order had been suspended in the words of one scholar. With that understanding then, we understand that the now sending of them is a powerful reminder and confirmation that these are indeed the people of God. And he still does this sort of thing. We no longer offer these offerings, but he still gives us signs to confirm our interest in these promises. He gives us baptism, whereby when when the water is poured on the head of a new convert or the child of a professing believer, this one is marked out and said, this one does not belong to the world, but he belongs, she belongs to the church of the living God. This is a child of God. This is an adopted child. And he gives us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we will observe in just a little while. And I love the language of our larger catechism as it explains in answer 168 that the Lord's Supper, they that worthily communicate, feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And they have their union and communion with him confirmed. And they testify and renew their thankfulness and engagement to God. Praise God for his kindness in sending these confirmations, not because he needs them, but because he has pity on our weak faith and we need them. That is the Lord's pity for his people. And we're now ready to move on and see his protection. He vows that he will protect them, beginning in verse 20. He says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a desolate land. Now, the, the identity of this northerner is the source of much debate amongst the commentators. There are, generally speaking, three camps that people fall into. One is he could be speaking about the army of the locusts that he had sent in chapter 1. The next is he could be speaking of the eschatological army of the Lord that was bent on them for destruction. And the third option, uh, which has, uh, you can make a strong historical case for, is he's talking about some invading force like Assyria or Babylon who were northern countries that would come in and sack the people of God. It should be noted, though, that any opposing force that attacked Jerusalem due to the geography and the layout of the land had to come from the north. And so I mentioned that to say we don't want to put too much stress on this term northerner. It was, it, was, it was an identifier of person, not necessarily of origin. Uh, at this point in redemptive history, the, the term northerner meant enemy. The, the term northerner meant nothing more than uh, bad guy. And for those of you who have lived in the South for some time, you're thinking, not much has changed. So rather than spend time speculating about the identity of this one, the prophet, I believe, intentionally leaves vague. We would do well to heed the the insight of James Boyce. The precise meaning is probably unimportant, and indeed all three may be in view. Nevertheless, what Joel is saying is that God will keep all enemies away, and that he will throw up a hedge of protection around his people. What a great and rich blessing that is. What a joy it is to be a Christian and to know the protection of our God. Whoever this northerner may be, we need to take heed, though, that when the people of God tried to withstand him on their own, they were crushed 
They were left desolate, as the earlier portions of the book make plain. They were like, do you, do you recall the story of David and Goliath? And, and David is getting ready to go out to battle, and Saul gives him all of this worldly armor. And he can't walk, and he can't move, and he says, if I try and fight like this, I'm toast. And so he trusts in the Lord, and he goes out with meagerly provisions and conquers the giant. It is the same way for us. When the Lord says, I will remove the northerner far from you. And the application I would make is this is so vital for our own spiritual battles, our own spiritual warfare, whatever sin you may be struggling with. And I feel comfortable saying I'm in a room full of sinners. Whatever sin you may be struggling with, be it pride or anger or lust or idolatry or whatever it is, yes, put wise plans in place. If you struggle with pornography, put the software on your computer. Get an accountability partner. Do all of those things. Absolutely do that. But know that you are not a lone soldier in this spiritual warfare. You have a captain in the well-fought fight, and it is the Lord Jesus by whom you can approach the Father in prayer. If we try to tackle the sin in our lives on our own, that sin will sift you as wheat. But the right man is on our side. And we can go to him in prayer, communing with him in his word. The Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. Let that not be said among us. Often, it will take a lot of time in prayer. It's not as simple as, Lord, please help me with my anger. Amen. And then the next day you wake up and it's over. No. Struggle. Work hard in prayer. Give yourself to it. Remember the example of Epaphras, a man we know almost nothing about, but he's recorded in Paul's writing of Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And he says, this man worked hard in prayer. He labored in prayer. Be diligent in prayer and watch the Lord work. By the Spirit of God, put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Lord says in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 7, give me no rest until I bring in the new Jerusalem. Be diligent in prayer and watch him work. Be like the persistent widow in Luke 18. The unrighteous judge answers her for her persistence sake. How much more will the righteous judge answer her for her faith? Read your Bible and pray. It almost sounds too easy. That's because these are not simple words on a page. These are not simple words that we speak with our mouth. No, they are means by which we commune with the everlasting God whose arm is not too short to save. And he will protect us. And this is followed then by three sharp imperatives in verses 21 to 23, telling the people of Judah what they are to do. And it's interesting to note in each of these verses, the Lord speaks not only to the people of Judah, but to all of creation. He addresses the land in verse 21. He addresses the beasts of the field in verse 22, and then finally, the children of Zion in verse 23. <clears throat> what is the Lord doing here? We, we know, as beautiful as the created order is, I'm, I'm looking out at it behind you right now, that those trees can't hear words. They can't obey commands. And as much as you may love your, your dog, it is not the dog the Lord is consumed for, concerned for. No, as Paul says, speaking of Old Testament husbandry laws, it is not the oxen that the God is concerned for. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? 
And so when he speaks to the land and to the beasts and says, fear not, he is speaking to you. He is saying that even these seemingly insignificant details in the plan of my redemption will not be overlooked. They will not be lost out on. It's as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, consider the lilies of the field. How God closed the grass that grows up this morning and will be burned by the afternoon. And the point of that is how much more Will he care for and protect you, his adopted child? What a joyful thing it is to know the protection of our Heavenly Father. And of course, this does not mean that there won't be trials for us. It means that there will not be trials that are outside of his control, that are outside of his purview. It reminds me of the words of the first answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And to the children of Zion, he then says emphatically, Be glad. Be glad. Rejoice, O children of Zion, for the Lord your God has given you the early rain for your vindication. Now that line about early rain for your vindication is the most frustratingly difficult line in the entire passage to translate. Because there are two apparent meanings that there could be here. And the first is captured in our ESV and is in most major Bible translations essentially saying that Joel is telling the people to be glad because God is going to send rain upon the land. And I have no doubt in my mind that that is at least part of what Joel has in mind here. The, the, the sending of rain on the land was obviously a sign of God's blessing in many places of the Old Testament. But the alternative rendering, I think, is a little bit more compelling. And if you have a, a, a New King James or a New American Standard, uh, you'll see this listed in your footnotes. The alternative rendering is, be glad, for he sends you the teacher of righteousness. Now, it's very easy to see how the same word could easily mean vindication or righteousness. They're obviously synonymous. But rain versus teacher, that's a little harder for our minds to put together. And yet the same word in Hebrew does mean both things. It's because our minds don't uh, think the same way an Old Testament Hebrew would. The semantic range is possible for both. It depends on the context. Uh, but for just for one example of how closely associated teacher and reign are, just consider a couple of passages. Uh, the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 20 to 23. Your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and he will give you reign. Or consider the prophet Amos who says that there is a famine in the land. A famine of what? A famine of instruction from the word of God. And what does, he what does he compare that to? A drought. The absence of teaching is akin to a drought. The absence of instruction from God's word is akin to no rain at all. But most interesting for our purposes today is the language of Solomon in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. And then there's a portion of the prayer where Solomon prays about future covenant breakers which is who these people are to him. And he says, when the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, 
It's the very situation they're in. When you here in heaven turn and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land. And so given the prophet's propensity for double meaning and the close semantic association between rain and instruction from the Lord, it seems to me most likely that Joel has both of these ideas in mind. And I would lay the primary emphasis on teacher of righteousness. This is the uh, understanding of many of the early Jewish commentators, particularly those who wrote between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is also the understanding of most of the early church fathers who saw this to be a, a prophetic uh, 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 fulfillment in the same line as Deuteronomy 18.18 18, where Moses says, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me among you. And if that's correct, and I believe it is, what this means is that at the center, at the heart of the Lord's message of grace stands the Messiah, stands the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sum and substance of every promise that God is jealous to keep for his people. And he is not the one that moved the Father to pity. The Father already had pity, but he is the expression of that pity. He is the one who came to live the perfect and sinless life that you and I were called to live and has failed, and so he did it on our behalf. And so the prophet says, be glad. He is the one who fulfilled the whole of God's law, even drinking to the dregs the cup of the curse that was yours and mine to drink. And so the prophet says, be glad. And he is the one who poured out the Holy Spirit, of whom the prophet mentions in the very next passage that you might be united to him by faith, and that you might be kept for the day of the Lord. Be glad. And this spirit, he, he brings to mind all things that the Lord has said, and he leads us into all truth. And so what I say to you this morning, dear Christian, is what you need more than anything is this teacher of righteousness. And Joel says he will come. And the rest of the Bible says he has come, and so we can be glad. You are most highly privileged among all people. Do you realize that? Because if, if you're seeking for this teacher of righteousness, you happen to be off to a great start. You're worshiping his name. And you're under the ministry of his word. You, you have it in your lap. Be glad. He's there to instruct you, to lead you, and to protect you. How does a teacher protect me? One of my duties at Second Presbyterian Church is to work with our youth. And it seems like every couple months I've got a new 16-year-old that needs me to fill out something for them with the DMV. Why do they need to go through the DMV? Because they're about to drive. And the most effective way to protect them on the road is what? Good instruction. The teacher of righteousness, faithful instruction, is the most important means of protecting you. From what? From folly and sin and foolishness and the ways of the world that we can say, no, that is not what God has said. I will cling closely to my teacher of righteousness. So if we have seen so far this morning the Lord's pity for his people and his protection, and now we'll move on with our remaining time to his provision. 
And we'll see that he provides in abundance. Look again at verse 24. He says, The threshing floors shall be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. He doesn't bring just some meagerly pittance. No, it overflows. It's, it's almost more than we can handle. There's a family that I'm close with back in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And a few years ago, they sent their oldest daughter to college for the first time. And she went to Bob Jones University, which is right down the road from me in Greenville. And so my wife and I were able to maintain a relationship with this young girl. And she told us, after her first trip home, when she got back to college, she said, Jeff, you wouldn't believe it. It was, it was unreal. It was almost too much. Because for that whole six weeks that she had been gone, her mom, every time she went to the store, saw a trinket, saw a snack, saw some treat, something that reminded her of the daughter that she missed dearly. And when, when she came home, it was all there waiting for her. She said it was overwhelming. It was too much. And for the child of God who has been away, he longs to lavish rich spiritual blessings upon you. The moment of your faith and repentance, he longs to give these to you. And as sweet as that abundance and provision may sound, I'm sure it did sound to the people of Judah who had the first hearing of this, there were almost certainly doubts remaining. What about the years that we were away? What about the lost years? What about the years that the locust has eaten? Are they gone for good? Look at verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. Joel chapter 1 verse 4 lists all four of these locusts as those that have come to wipe out the people of God. All four of them. And in Joel chapter 2 he says, I will restore to you what they took. How sweet must that have been to them. They had lost everything. They had lost everything. And it was their fault. They had, with knowledge abandoned the Lord who made them, called them out of bondage. We say we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. They did it. They had sown the wind and reaped the whirlwind, but now the Lord says, I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. Full atonement can it be. Yes, but more than that, full reconciliation of all things. Notice that this fourfold judgment of God has turned now into a fourfold forgiveness. Fourfold redemption. Think of Peter, the night of Jesus' trial, three times denied the Lord. And after the resurrection, at the end of John's gospel, we read the Lord asks him, Peter, 
Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. And then again, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend to my flock. And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Three denials. Three redemptions. Four locusts. Four redemptions. And child of God, he will do that for you. He will do that for you. There are certainly people in this room who have lost years. Maybe you're like me, and you didn't come to know the Lord until you were an adult, and so you have years, decades of living, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once walked as sons of disobedience. Maybe that's your background. You have all kinds of things that you regret, and you think, if I knew then what I know now, how much better it could have been. He will restore those years to you. Or perhaps you grew up in this church or one just like it. And for years, you walked utterly passive. I go to church on Sunday morning because that's what you do. And you look back and you say, how much further along could I have been if I'd only given ear, if I'd only given attention, if I'd only given time and devotion to prayer and the Word of God? How much better would it be? And you think it's gone. But he says, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. It is right that we lament those lost years. And it is right that we vow to do better But it is also right that we take comfort that at the end of the matter, the Lord promises, I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, gives us some helpful understanding here, and he said it so well. He says, you cannot have back your time, but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings the unripened fruits of years over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. It is a great wonder, but Jehovah is a God of wonders. And in his kingdom, his grace miracles are common things. And again, Spurgeon says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Does not the very difficulty, yea, the impossibility of the enterprise, make it all the more worthy of the Almighty? Herein is a marvelous thing, and here is a thing fitting for a God who doth great marvels. You may experience the redemption of those lost years in various ways, even in this life. Perhaps you had a a difficult relationship with parents growing up. Perhaps you had a combative relationship with the Father and the Lord is pleased to restore to you those years in a healthy relationship now with your own children and grandchildren. Perhaps you've experienced great trial and suffering and conflict that was due to your own foolishness and folly or that of those around you. And the Lord may be pleased to restore to you those years by now you can come alongside someone else who is suffering in that same condition and you can offer them that great comfort with which you yourself have been comforted of course it also may be the case 
that you do not experience that in this life. Maybe you have to wait for the day of the Lord. But it will come. It will come. It will be on that day, to borrow an expression from Tolkien, as if everything sad has become untrue. We have seen then God's great pity, His protection, and His abundant provision for His people. There's one more aspect of His provision that I want to look at this morning. I hope you've seen so far how how glorious of a God we serve, because because if you see that, if you understand that, then you'll understand the the, the wonders of this last provision. You'll be like Moses after he forgave the Israelites in the wilderness for worship in the golden calf. Lord, let me see your face. Let me be with you. And that's what he vows in verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the greatest promise of all. This is the promise that holds the whole Bible together. The Lord in our midst. This is what Adam and Eve lost in the garden when they walked with the Lord God in the cool of the day before the fall. And this promise of the Lord being in our midst, it's what what the tabernacle was about. And it's what the temple in the days of Solomon was about. And it's what John wrote of in John chapter 1 when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's what you and I enjoy in, in, in part now with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, whom we have as the first fruits. But the fullness of this will be realized the dawn of the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth when we will hear the voice declare from the throne, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will be with them as their God and they will be his people. And you may be tempted to think, I know I'll be there, but I'm probably not going to get to see him. I find myself often defaulting to thinking, well, you know, I'll be at the party, (laughs) but he's going to be so high up on the throne. I'm going to be so far away. I'm I'm never going to get to see the host. But do you know what John says in Revelation 21, 4? He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Have you ever considered how close you have to be to someone for them to wipe away a tear from your eye? You will be with him. You will be with him forever. A few years ago, there was a municipal judge in Rhode Island named Frank Caprio. And he went viral online for his compassionate verdicts. Perhaps you've seen some of his videos. He went viral because people longed to hear the words of a compassionate judge. They marveled at his gentle spirit, at his warm heart. They couldn't wait to hear what the judge would say. But at best, Judge Caprio could remove some of the negative consequences for their crimes. Reduce some fines, reduce some time, whatever it may be. How much better is our God? And how much more ought we to rejoice? Because our judge speaks to us in Christ of things of unimaginable glory. 
Indeed, things that the troubles of this world are not even worthy to be compared to. Pardon of sins. Accounted as righteous for the sake of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But more than that, that we will dwell with him forever. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if you are here today, believing in the Lord Jesus, receiving him alone for salvation as he has freely offered in the gospel, one of those rooms is for you. And until that day, as we wander through this world as pilgrims, know, dear flock of God, that you are pitied, you're protected, you're provided for. Let us pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for the sweet promises of your word. Would you, by your spirit, help us to believe these most precious things? O Lord, we do believe, but help thou our unbelief. Help us to look to the day of Christ's return when he shall wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Lord, help us to wait with eagerness for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.